Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we have Cecilia Jung, who is a corporate and privacy attorney at Schwabe, Williamson, and Wyatt. Cecilia helps businesses assess risks associated with data and advises on compliance and security strategies. Today, Cecilia is going to be giving us an overview of the latest compliance and regulatory landscape in the context of data protection and privacy. Hey, Cecilia, how are you doing today? Hi, Mark. I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. It's Friday, so I have no complaints. I'm ready for the weekend. It's a little rainy out, but uh, that's okay. Well, that's kind of par for the course here in Seattle, so (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately. Hey, um... So we're going to be talking about uh, some of the different data uh, privacy protection regulations. Um, we're going to be talking about GDPR and the, some of the uh, similar privacy legislation that has been enacted in California. Where do you, where would you like to start? Hmm. Let's start with an overview of the GDPR and the CCPA. How's that? Okay. That's awesome. Great. Um, yeah. So I think everyone who has um, a computer knows that around May of last year, uh, the GDPR came into effect, which means that, um, which was basically a sweeping regulation, the first of its kind globally that we've ever seen, um, that really regulates and co- the collection and processing of personal information of any individual in the yeah, European Union. Um, so I think most for most people that really what the result of that was, was them getting a flood of emails in their inbox saying, we've updated our privacy policy. Um, Yes. Are we we done now? Can we, can we go back to, uh, (laughs) to our regular scheduled program? (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, In fact, actually, I think that, that piece of regulation took um, years and years of discussion and lots of regulatory bodies giving input and companies giving input. And um, I think from the United States perspective, we are, we look at personal data a little bit differently than the European Union. And so we've been kind of just monitoring from afar and pundits have been um, sort of anticipating U.S. regulations to follow suit. Now, um, you know, it really hasn't been that long since May. And uh, what we've seen already is that California in June of tw- or on June, June 28, 2018, um, passed a Consumer Privacy Act, which comes into effect in January 1st, 2020. And that is the first U.S. regulation that really starts to look a lot like GDPR. Okay, um, so let me let me just jump in and ask a question here. Sure. Uh, because a lot of people are asking and a lot of organizations are asking, well, you talk about GDPR, that's a European thing. Why do I need to be concerned as a U.S. resident or as a U.S. Organiza- U.S.-based organization? Why does that concern me? Yeah, so we get that question a lot, too. Um, in fact, the GDPR, though, the scope of it is actually really expansive. It's a little scary how expansive it is. It doesn't just apply to anyone that 
is doing the actual collecting of European-based personal information. It actually applies to anyone that processes that information on behalf of a company that collects it. So for example, you know, you have a, you're a local company, but you contract with a European-based company that has collect, that collects um, data about European Union individuals and you, I don't know, um, inventory it or you store it or you help delete it, you you, you touch it, you get too close to it, you smell it, um, then you could fall into the purview of GDPR. So you could be a U.S.-based airline or hotel chain, for example, but if you have the data that relates to EU residents, uh, maybe they're flying, they're a part of your loyalty club, uh, maybe they're, they're, um, they stay in your hotels, or maybe you have employees that are, are, are living and residing in Europe, all of that data would fall under GDPR? Um, yes. And really, I mean... You know, that was, that was funny because that was... The way you responded to that was, uh, and I hope you take this the right way, it was a, a, the typical way uh, an attorney would respond. Um, yes, <laughs> you kind of qualified <laughs> it for a second. It's like, so yeah. there, there's a lot of ways to dice it, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it really, there are a lot of, you know, really the GDPR, the spirit of the GDPR is focused on companies that is providing services or selling products or marketing to Europe. That is true. But yes, technically, you can fall under the purview of the GDPR without necessarily doing that. Um, and it, the other aspect of this, too, is, you know, people, a lot of people ask, well, if, I, if the GDPR doesn't apply to me, then why do I have to do anything? Um, and it's not even that you have to do anything yet, but realistically, just the way that data is starting to move, the way that companies are leaning on data, the way that data is becoming a commodity for a lot of companies across industries, um, you know, we're going to start seeing U.S. regulations similar to the GDPR. And compliance is is not an overnight thing. I mean, I'm sure you know, um, it takes a really long time to actually get your arms around what data you're using. And and uh, even the scope of what you're working with, of how to comply, um, that's going to take a really long time. So I think for a lot of those companies that are concerned, I mean, you know, the short answer, if I'm being really real, um, even if you don't fall within the scope of GDPR, you should be taking steps to get to move toward compliance. Because that goes back to your point or what you were talking about earlier about even if it, you don't fall under GDPR today, maybe, for example, you might fly, uh, fall under the uh, California Privacy Act or yeah. other types of regulations that are popping up almost daily now. So, Absolutely. So, so, you know, I mean, we tend to look at things from the, um, the data protection, uh, cybersecurity perspective. Like when mm-hmm. we put the, that, those lenses on when we're going in to provide a service. You're coming at it from a slightly different angle. Well, actually, a, a completely different angle. You're looking more from the legal context. Yes, but actually, and you know, I think historically we've um, even, I mean, academics, practitioners have sort of looked at privacy and security as two entirely separate issues. But the way that regulations are moving now, actually, um, are they talk about sort of the privacy aspects of it. So what are the individual's rights? What are um, the, the let's see, what are certain disclosures that there need to be made to the individual, things like that. Um, but these laws are also folding in security requirements, right? Like the GDPR requires companies to have measures 
that require or that um, move that are sort of focused on the security of that the information that they collect or that they process. Absolutely. Um, but what I'm saying, in terms of the service that we provide, we, we definitely go in and look at that. Are, are the, when you go in and engage with a client, um, are you talking about more of the security-related items? Or are you talking more about, you know, the disclosures or other types of legal or legal-related um, legal strategies they can implement to move towards compliance? So, yeah, I mean, certainly the legal aspect of it is is definitely the first answer. Um, but, you know, we definitely, you can't really talk about it without also looking at their security aspects. I think we, um, sort of our services are very ancillary and complementary because we look at it sort of from a big picture of like, okay, here's what are you working with? What are what do you have in place now? And um, what are the requirements that you are going to fall have to abide by? Um, which really depends on that initial assessment. And then I think for you guys, um, you're really looking at the technical, like where are your holes, where are your vulnerabilities, and what um, processes and systems can you put in place to mitigate those technical risks, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So so from your side, um, what are you seeing as some of the the major issues or flags that organizations should be aware of both in in relation to GDPR and the uh, California Privacy Act and maybe some of the other um, uh, regulations that are that are being announced. Yeah, um, what I'm seeing is the most important and the fundamental step to all of these regulations, even when we discuss security, is to do a very, very thorough assessment and um, inventory of the data that you're using, the software, the the platforms, the hardware, um, the employees that are touching that or have access to that information. Um, I think all of these laws really, really require that. Okay. Yeah. So that's number one. Um, Two, there are other concepts that are, we're seeing sort of repeated. Um, One really big one is that every activity that you do with personal information um, requires uh, sort of a legal basis to do that. So either you have received consent from the individual, uh, they you're under contract with the individual, um, you're required by law to process it. There's some sort of basis that you need to be able to justify the activities that you're conducting with regard to this data um, on one of those grounds. So that we're seeing very common. Um, another one is certain individual rights. I mean, so the Euro- GDPR, Europe, Europe views privacy, individual privacy as a fundamental right. Um, the United States doesn't necessarily view it that way. And so we really look at it from like a consumer's right, right? Like anything that's really like deals with some sort of monetary aspect of it. Um, and but under both of those types of uh, regimes, we're, rec- we're seeing that individuals are given certain rights, like they can request the information that companies are collecting and processing about them. And they can um, request, they need to be no, or they need, sorry, excuse me. Um, they can request on certain grounds that companies delete their information. Um, they have certain grounds to be able to correct that information, you know? So there's sort of these individual rights 
Um, so that's another wing. And then the third big one is that um, they have a right to be given certain disclosures and those disclosures need to be comprehensible to the average person or the average reader. Um, uh, there's a recent piece of legislation. So GDPR, big news um, recently is that the French authority came down on Google mm-hmm. and that was part of their, their claim is that they, um, it really regard it's regarding their advertising activities, their targeted advertising practices. And one of the things that they looked at was what disclosures were being made. And it said that, you know, users really, in order to understand the processing operations um, for ad personalization, they had to go between multiple documents. And, um, you know, there was a lot of clicking involved and different layers. And um, it doesn't cover, you know, and also Google have a, has a lot of affiliate organizations that they were sharing Google, um, information with. You know, Play Store, Google Pictures, YouTube, uh, things like that, Google Home. Um, and so what they said was, this is not transparent. This isn't, this doesn't uh, follow the obligations of transparency of information. Because it's too difficult and time consuming or just confusing to go through all these different uh, screens and and documents to, to understand really how they're going to use my data. Is that it? Yeah. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was involved in a um, an ongoing project for a few years in in the EU in the financial services industry, and all the documentation, uh, excuse me, all the information that was provided to consumers had to meet certain readability requirements. And for those uh, documents, the readability was had to be at the eighth or ninth grade level. So. Any oh, wow. eighth or ninth grader would be able to understand what it was that they were buying and what were the potential risks and returns related to those. So that's a that's a pretty, I guess, challenging thing to do, uh, especially when oftentimes those documents are being written by lawyers, right? Because uh, as a a lawyer, you need to have very specific wording. And, and, you know, just one word can change the meaning of the whole previous phrase, right? So it's a a challenge. I mean, how do you deal with with issues like that? Because I'm sure that you're you're involved with helping write some of the, um, you know, consent forms, etc. How do you do that? Absolutely. Um, You know, one part of privacy that's super interesting to me is that it's applicable to my life outside of being a lawyer, right? Like I'm a consumer, I have data, I sign up for stuff, I have subscriptions. And so it often takes a lot of thought to just sort of step back. I start with the legalese generally, you know, and make sure you hit all the requirements. Um, And then you kind of have to take a step back and read it as a consumer. Um, And that is that can be very difficult to do. But Also, it's not because I go in and read privacy policies that I haven't drafted. And when you haven't drafted them, um, I think you can sort of separate yourself and read them as as a consumer, as it applies to your information and your data and your accounts. Um, We also have, you know, I look at a lot of examples. I look at the way that trends are moving. The thing about the GDPR and these regulations is they're relatively new and they really haven't been interpreted. So they use these things like, you know, it has to be transparent. Um, it has to be, 
unambiguous, you know, these types of terms that may not have been fully explored or specified yet and what that means when it's actually applied. And so I think it's really important for companies, especially industry specific, to look at what trends are happening, how entities are dealing with it. The scary thing about Google is I think, while on the one hand, people were expecting Google or Facebook or Amazon, one of the big companies to be sort of the example of the first enforcement of GDPR, they were also sort of seen as a leader in the way that they're making certain disclosures. And I think they held themselves out to that standard. And so it's a little bit scary right now to see um, to see this happen and to try and figure out what is the gold standard. Right. There's a lot of ambiguity built into GDPR and some of the other regulations. Um, another one is a DPO or data protection officer is required if the controller or processor is processing large amounts of data. Well, what is a large amount of data? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Because my, yeah. my laptop's almost full, so I, I'm guessing that's a large amount, but I'm sure the GDPR <laughs> would have no interest at all in going after me. So <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And, you know, like I think we have it'll be interesting to see also how um, the standards as they get more explored in the United States and the European Union differ. I mean, the the U.S. regulations have these sort of like numerical thresholds that we're seeing, you know, often it's like 50,000 individuals or households or devices or things like that. Um, But in the EU, I, I mean, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, and so there's and there's very little precedent at this point. Hey, I just thought of something. Um, a, a way for Google to uh, kill two birds with one stone, they could improve their own compliance posture and offer a new service. You know on Google Translate? Mm-hmm. Maybe they could offer a legalese to readable English translation <laughs> service. Genius, genius. Let's license out to Google now. That's right. <laughs> so you heard it here first, people. Um, so, so you actually mentioned um, some of the uh, that some of the U.S.-based regulations require, or excuse me, they are, they're more specific in terms of you know this is applicable if. Um, X number of of individuals' data is involved, and I think in, I took a brief look at the the regulations or the bill that's being proposed in Washington State, and I think there are some some numbers that are specified in there. Do you have any information about that? Yeah. So in Washington, the threshold is um, it, it applies to companies that conduct business in Washington or. Uh, produce products or services that are intentionally targeted toward Washington residents. Um, and then it, those companies or the companies that it applies to, they either control or process data of a hundred thousand consumers or more, um, or derives 50% of their gross revenue from the sale of personal information, um, of 25, Oh, excuse me, and processes or controls personal information of 25,000 consumers or more. So basically what we're seeing is it's either a number. So one, they will look at where you're, what you're doing and where you're doing it, right? Like where are you providing services or creating products? What sort of presence do you have in the state? Um, and then two, they'll look at whether, how how many individuals are data you are controlling or processing? And then three, how much of your revenue is sort of dependent on that data? And there's a specific threshold for that. So um, that's pretty common. That's kind of how the California one is built out as well. 
So are you seeing companies uh, and organizations come to you and say, hey, we need help with this specific regulation? Or are they coming to you and saying, you know what, how are we going to keep abreast of all these different regulations? What is just the best practices that we can follow to make us more or less in compliance with all regulations across the board? So it's kind of, it's both, but for the most part, people come saying, hey, we heard about this law, this California law, and it really freaks us out. Um, And then the conversation naturally devolves to um, what are the best practices? Because one, there's uncertainty with the GDPR, but there's more uncertainty with the California Consumer Protection Act. I don't know how much background you know about it, but basically it was drafted in a hurry. Um, there were some glaring errors, like there were typos, um, inconsistent terms, no references to other Can- or to other California laws, which California has um, the most data-centric laws in of, of any state. And so there's just some glaring ambiguities, inconsistencies with that law. So when it was first passed, I think folks who are sort of embedded in this space were kind of look at it, doing a side eye at it, you know, Mm -hmm. like, okay, like you passed it, we get it, you're making a statement, but what type of um, regulations and amendments are going to be passed? And we've already seen one that has been passed, which does fix a lot of the glaring issues. But there are still a lot of questions to be answered. And I think the California AG is still holding hearings now, um, getting community feedback about it. So all of this is to say, or and other states are coming out with laws. We, we talked about Washington a little bit, federal laws. We've seen like, you know, three to five bills, I believe, in the last like three or four months, um, including a sort of co- comprehensive data care act. So because of all of these changes happening, as you said, every day, um, we generally guide clients to best practices and sort of the initial implementation steps that they need to consider and um, in order to even be compliant, to even move toward compliance, whatever that's going to mean. Right. So, I mean, you know, step one, Theoretically, for example, step one, protect your data, right? (laughs) You know, um, step two, make sure your security posture is in place. Step three, you know, do you have a consent form? Do you have a process for tracking, you know, uh, the different processing activities you've done with said person's data, et cetera? You could probably, there's probably a whole uh, list that you could go down that are pretty much consistent across all these regulations in principle, right? The actual actual numbers or, you Mm -hmm. know, for example, a breach response or breach notification under GDPR at 72 hours. um, And some some regulations are more strict, some more more relaxed. But the idea is you do need to have some type of breach response and notification process in place. And you probably have to document that so that if you do get questioned um, by the regulators, you can say, hey, here's our... Here's our plan. Here's our process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even before that, I mean, I know I've mentioned this a few times, but you would be surprised at how many companies don't know what they're working with, you know, even to have like security measures in place, controls in place. um, You know, they they have never taken inventory of the data that they're collecting and using uh, software, hardware, you name it. Um, and there's those are I mean, sure, from your perspective, you're like, ah, red flags everywhere. Yes, oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, we tell people um, data 
data can is an asset, but it can also be like toxic waste, right? Just waiting to explode on you. So, you know, you don't want to keep a bunch of chemicals in your garage if you're not using them. If you don't have a reason to have them around, and in Data's case, it would be a, a business purpose to keep them around. Um, it's, it's only downside, right? So, so get, find a way to get rid of that stuff. That's great. I'm totally going to use that. <laughs> yeah, I stole that from Hiram, who, the CEO of Adequest, by the way. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's awesome. I'll, I'll make sure to give him, throw him some cred. Cool. Um, so, so why don't we have a federal privacy law so that the states can all just say, hey, okay, that's good? Because otherwise, I mean... Uh, establishing establishing a a compliance posture for 50 different regulations or a patchwork of however many states have these regulations in place is incredibly complex and time consuming etc and you've got to you know you got to monitor all the updates and changes etc mm-hmm. why don't we just have an overarching federal law similar to GDPR in the EU i mean oh, it's similar in terms man. of the coverage yeah i'm sorry go ahead how much time do you have, Mark? Um, <laughs> so, is, it, is it complicated? <laughs> so I think what it really boils down to, and I, you know, people may disagree with me. I think um, for me, it's that the United States as a whole hasn't doesn't have the same perception of the importance of protecting personal information. Right. I mean, historically in the United States, we've looked at it from an industry. We said, hey, you know, there's specific types of information that's really important, like healthcare or financial information, you know, social security numbers, those types of things. Um, and then they've really left the regulation to the states, uh, I think. But what's happening now is, you know, look at how much uh, technology has change in the last 20 to 30 years. And now the value is really in uh, creating profiles of users, of individuals, right? They're tracking not your payment information, but what you're buying, when you're buying it, where you're buying it from. Who you're uh, connected to, where you're exactly, vacationing, everything. Exactly. And, and then before you know it, the com- compilation of all of this information creates makes a consumer very vulnerable. I mean, companies can target you in ways that like, like legislation could never have followed. Um, well, not just companies, uh, you know, what's the word? Um, cyber criminals, okay? Oh, oh absolutely. Because if, 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 if there's a breach and they get enough of the, um, the right sort of information, then their job when it comes to social engineering is so much easier, right? I mean, they know who you're connected with, all your activities, and then they can put together, they know your mannerisms even, you know, yeah. your communication style. And then if they want to pretend to be you or to pretend to be somebody you know or work with, it's so much easier. I was just speaking with, uh, with Kip Boyle over at Cyber risk cyber risk opportunities um, and Kip Kip wrote a book called uh, Fire Doesn't Innovate and he, basically you know he was we, he was talking about a, a case where a company down in Australia somebody had sent an email to their their CFO uh, p- pretending to be the CEO saying hey um, you know this is pretty darn urgent we need to wire make this uh, this wire transfer. Mm -hmm. And the guy went ahead and did it because it looked like it followed Mm -hmm. the communication style of the CEO. The email address was almost identical and he just did it. And it was $56 million. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, I uh, re read about that every day. I mean, that is happening across industries. Uh, we just got one. We have these like, you know, legal net or uh, newsletters that come out on the national level. And it was talking about how an associate wired, you know, three million, which is, you know, pales in comparison to your example, but, you know, of client money. Um, and it's happening all the time. And what we're seeing too is, and I'm sure you're seeing it as well, but they're getting more and more sophisticated. You know, oh, before, before and, one, one I'm of sorry, the go ahead. Like, tells of these phishing emails was um, like grammatical errors. Right. Because often they were coming <laughs> from overseas. Yeah, yeah. Now, not only are there no grammatical errors, but as you said, they're like sounding more and more like the people that they're trying to embody. They're, they're sounding more. They're looking like uh, <laughs> the more the authentic. And what they're doing is they're automating. So instead of sending them out individually, they're automating the collection of personal data, of profiling, and then of sending out the email. So, you know, you send out hundreds of thousands a day. Um, all it takes is a couple to, uh, to click on that, whatever, and, you're, you know, you're in. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing, um, you know, I hear a lot of stories and people make a joke out of it, but how their good organizations are, their IT de departments or um, third party consultants are coming in and doing the test phishing emails. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, three people in this organization have, have clicked this email. Um, so the public shaming part of it actually <laughs> be effective. Yeah, it's funny. It almost it can lead to almost a sense of paranoia, which it, I, I oh, think yeah. generally is good. Uh, in this case, I had somebody call me recently and said, I, I, I've been contacted by a recruiter and the email looks really authentic and the job opportunity sounds awesome, but they want me to click on a PDF to open up the, the job mm -hmm. description. Should I click on it? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> like Depends probably on... <laughs> baseline don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and do not send it to me, okay? No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely do not forward it on. Right. So yeah. um, what? Uh, let's go back to Google. What's, what's going to be the resolution of that? So, um, you know, to be determined, Mark, I mean, they, so they've been, the fine was 57 million uh, or 50 million euro, uh, which is approximately 57 million US dollars. Um, and then the next day, Google appealed it. Right. So at this point, you know, um, I, I got to think that that's just like going to turn out to be a negotiation between their attorneys and the regulators. Because the regulators, from what I understand, the regulators in the EU are self-funded, right? Um, so they, they they survive partially based upon the fines that they can assess and collect. Um, and, you know, you throw a number up there to Google, like 50 million euro, and they come back and say, hey, we give, we'll give you 10 and just make this go away. I, I don't know. I mean, do you think that's part of the play here? I, I do. I really do. Um, and it's not unheard of. It's not just the EU. I mean, even when they're not self-funded, you know, like the FTC in the United States um, would have gone after companies for unfair and deceptive practices. And it has been a conversation. I mean, it really is like, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. And here are all the issues that we're finding with it. And then it's the company's duty to come back and say, okay, well, here's what we are doing. And you know, what we intended, this is what we intend by our practices. We're being very intentional. We're being very thoughtful. We've put safeguards in place. Um, and that is where the conversation really starts. Um, you know, I think the FTC's really come down on companies after they've like put down a mandate, you know, after mm -hmm. several rounds of conversations and said, okay, you need to do this. And then the company doesn't comply. And then they'll come back with 
big fines. Um, but with the GDPR, I would have, I, I really do think it's going to um, play out that way as well. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about facial recognition technology and applications. Are you seeing any regulations or are you giving any advice about how they can be used or when they can be used, et cetera? So we are seeing regulations come up and states are becoming, uh, are expressing more and more concern with the use of facial recognition information. Um, As of now, I'm advising companies that um, you need to consider this very highly sensitive information. And if you are using this technology, if you're thinking about using this technology, I say hold and wait um, because these regulations are coming in very quickly. Um, and two, if you already are collecting that type of information and you're using it, um, I, you know, you really got to put strong safeguards around it, policies around it, make sure you're not sharing that information. Um, so, so what are the limitations? For example, uh, I know that casinos oftentimes will use facial recognition to, to try to identify card counters, et cetera. That's what they claim anyway. Um, that's one use case, and another use case would be law enforcement. What are the what are the broad regulations, limitations, requirements in those two use cases? So, oh, this is tricky. You got you got you got me on this one. Um, That's okay. At this point, <laughs> I stumped be- I stumped the expert. Awesome. <laughs> you really did. You stumped me on this one. My well, the thing is, is I mean, you know what? I, nobody can claim to know all this because it's it's evolving so quickly, right? I mean, and the reason I'm asking you is because I got stumped. I was down in uh, in Mountain View a couple weeks ago presenting on GDPR, and mm-hmm. somebody in the, somebody in the audience asked me about facial recognition, and so I said, you know what? That's that's something that I I have not heard the latest. Um, info on in terms of how it's going to be regulated. So I thought I'd just pass it on to you. (laughs) And and my understanding is that the issue is that that it's not regulated. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, and that's, I think, where the um, proposed legislation is coming from is people are concerned and and legitimately so. I think there's also a uh, practice, well, we allegedly saw it with um, Amazon where right. they sold a bunch of that information to to, to law enforcement, um, right? Yeah. To law enforcement, which I is think that's their, their Amazon recognition software yeah. with a K recognition. I'm not sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah. And I, to be honest, I really don't know much about it, but I do know that that those are sort of the issues that are coming up that people are really concerned about. And there is legislation, I believe I just read about this briefly, but there is a state that um, proposed banning the use of facial recognition technology altogether. I'll have to go yeah. back and see which state that was. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty scary from a consumer side. Um, so if we put our consumer hats on, like like you said, I mean, we're we both have our our, our day jobs, but we are also consumers, right? And yes. as an individual. I know that I've been tagged in photos on Facebook, for example, or or I've posted a photo and Facebook has recognized the people in the photo and and it, it serves up the tag and says, do you want to tag this person? Right. So obviously they're recognizing who that is. And I mean, I can envision a day if it's not already available, but I can envision a day where you have an app on your phone and you take a picture of somebody 
and you get their identity, right? I mean, it, and I just, I, as you know, I moved back from Japan about a year ago, and people are, you're on the train every day, sitting across from all these people. Everybody's got their phone out, and it's just so easy to take a picture of somebody if you wanted to. That's pretty scary, though. Um, and I'm sure that there should, there's got to be, hopefully, somebody's protecting us. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think. It is, that is really scary, absolutely terrifying. But also, you know, I really, it, it really irks me um, the thought of public agencies using facial recognition. Um, you know, it, that has to be regulated. And uh, I actually am reminded now, I read about this this morning that municipalities are joining the conversation. So San Francisco, the city of San Francisco is actually talking about banning or uh, highly regulating the use of facial recognition by agencies um, that they would have to get like specific approval in order to um, engage with a new technology that uses facial recognition or surveillance. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I think under GDPR, so for example, you know, government agencies are allowed to collect certain information uh, that normally they wouldn't be able to collect or process if there's a security concern or if it's in the person's best interest. So, for example, if you're unconscious at a hospital, uh, yeah. you know, so they, they, they need to access your data and, and process that to help you. If you're crossing a border, uh, you're probably going to give up some of your data protection or privacy rights uh, just due to the nature of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, so. Why don't we kind of summarize the this conversation and 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 also tell us you know what you're seeing in terms of the latest lessons learned or ways to mitigate risk from the organizational side. So if you're a data controller, a data processor, what are some of the things that you can do to reduce your risk uh, in 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 relation to the, these different compliance uh, regulations. Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about it, but obviously, you know, it's a sort of big picture. First step is to assess your risk. Like what risks is your organization facing? You know, that requires, again, inventory mapping. Um, but and then after that, you really do also do an assessment of what policies and procedures and practices you already have in place, doing a very thorough assessment of that. And, you know, because you, while you do want to comply and you want to make sure that you're using best practices, um, you also want to understand what's feasible with your company model, right? Um, and that can vary, you know, that can really be the result of a number of varying factors, what industry you're in, what type of services you provide, whether you're B2B, B2C, um, size of company, geographical scope, um, so it's really having a thorough assessment with, and I would really recommend, and I'm not saying to be a plug to you or a plug to me, but um, really talking to it's a okay. You can you can that. you can you can plug our <laughs> services. <laughs> yes, but certainly engage a professional um, to mm. help you go through that assessment because it is very, it's a long strenuous one, and two um, sort of some low hanging fruit, right? If you have a website that you know spans, um, you know. I mean, it will obviously span a large geographical area um, and you have, you know, some consistent traffic coming in through it. Um, you really need to 
look at a privacy policy and start thinking about which disclosures you have in place. That's sort of low-hanging fruit. And then um, another one is after the mapping process, you know, you're also taking into account which third parties you are sharing information with. That could be a cloud service provider. That could be, um, you know, an H third-party HR consultant that helps you assess employee information. Um, and having processing agreements in place. There are certain requirements that you have to abide by if you're a controller. And, and there are also ones that for processors. But if you are a processor to a controller, then you have some requirements. You have to help them be in compliance. So certain disclosures that you have to put in place. Um, so you definitely want to make sure there's an agreement there. GDPR actually requires it. Um, and we're seeing the US regulations also follow suit. Washington also requires it uh, or will require it if this bill is passed. So uh, that's another really important one. And then third, the whole security aspect of it, right? Like once you've done your risk assessment, you wanna make sure you have good controls in place that you, um, you know, all of the things that you provide, all the services that you provide, call Mark basically, <laughs> <laughs> right? Quest, right? And then, yeah. right? Um, and then third, those, this one is that a lot of companies actually forget is that this has to be a consistent process. You have to keep taking inventory, keep collecting information, keep keeping records of what's happening um, and making sure that as technology evolves, that your, your policies and the measures that you have in place are actually doing their job. That's that's an excellent, excellent summary and a great place to get started, a great way to get started. Um, what kind of organizations are you working with? Um, right now, I specifically generally work with real estate and construction entities, some manufacturing. Um, but those are sort of the industries that often forget that or are over overlook the importance of data um, protection. Yeah, so let's let's talk about a real estate company, for example. And I don't want to drag this on too much longer, but I'm really uh, curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of data would a real estate company have that would fall under some of these regulations? Oh, I mean, the big one is like investors, right? Like a lot, we're seeing a lot of real estate investment trusts come up. All um, right. And okay. you have a lot of high, generally high profile investor information that's super important. You, uh, we've we've seen cases of. Uh, brokerage firms getting caught with wire fraud, like wire fraud, right? Um, or being, I guess, victim to wire fraud. Um, we are seeing, you know, and oh, one that's also often really overlooked is employee information. You have a lot of employee and independent contractor information that's actually really important. Absolutely. Um, and that definitely needs to be protected. Um, also, not even personal information, but this is just information that you want to keep is, you know, general strategies, trade secrets, um, you know, blueprints, like you name it. Um, right. Well, it, it, that's, that's, um, in fact, I mean, it's so, it's a common thread that so many businesses these days are dependent and sit on the shoulders of IT and data. And data is, this is the time of data right now. And it's just, um, it's, something that can be used, should be protected, and like we said earlier, but also can be um, that uh, potential, that's a, liab- a, liab- a liability is what I'm trying to say. Just nailed it on the head. Yeah, I think data can, you can, it can work for you. It can work really against you too. So people just have to be smart and intentional about it. Well, hey, Cecilia, I really appreciate your time. Um, and I'm sure your firm has a website. Can you tell us what the address is? 
Um, yes, our website is www.schwabe.com. That's Schwabi, not Schwab. I often get that a lot, whether I work for a bank or a tire company. Um. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, Cecilia, I really appreciate your time. Um, that was a lot of great and useful information. And I uh, look forward to crossing paths with you again soon. Yes, thank you so much, Mark. We'll talk soon. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.